Hey team, it's Ando here. 2022 is a big year for Australian rugby, and we at Pick and Drive Rugby want to be in the thick of it, but we need your support. We want to attend post-match press conferences to ask your questions. We need more interviews with players and coaches to give you the insights that you want into the game they play in heaven. And we want better recording equipment to create a superior listening experience for you. If you like what we do, and let's be honest, even if you don't, please consider getting involved and sending us a tip. All donations will be put straight back into the podcast. We do this for love, not money, but every little bit counts. So please go to ko-fi.com slash pick and drive rugby. You can give us $1, you can give us 5 whatever is within your budget, we would be incredibly appreciative for. Thank you for your support. Let's get back to the pod. Wade Cooper, for the win, it's on its way, it's on its way, it's gone, Wade Cooper is the man. Hi there and welcome to Pick and Drive Rugby Podcast, where diehard rugby fans having a weekly chat about all things Aussie rugby. We're real family friendly and positive, so get involved. Get involved. I'm your host, Ando. With me is Mitch. Mitch, how are you, my friend? Yep, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, lots of rugby over the weekend. Got out to a few games, so that was great to be at. My team lost both of them, so that was disappointing. And as we'll get to talk about later in the podcast, all of the Australian teams, unfortunately, lost this weekend. Um, but Some very close games, though, weren't they? Very close games. A lot better than last year. So we'll try and keep things upbeat and positive. <laughs> Somehow we managed to do that anyway. So let's keep on going. Now, we have a fantastic question that has come in from Lucy Erickson that we thought we'd bring right to the top of the pod. So well done, Lucy. Great question. It is, if you, would have, if you had to have one of the player's haircuts or facial hair combinations, who would you choose and why? Mitch, you first. All right, so I'm going with the Western Force theme for this one. So I'm mm-hmm. going to go with Feliti Kaitu's hair. Those dreadlocks you've got oh, are awesome. They yes. look great. With, I've just had a mind blank what his name is. The, uh, it's this, Jeremy Thrush. Uh, Jeremy Thrush, that's it. You know what I'm saying. Jeremy <laughs> Thrush's uh, handlebar moustache uh, facial hair combo. Ooh, that is a look. That together, like separately, they're great. Together, they're like perfect. When you say perfect, I think you mean perfectly horrific. Perfectly horrific, yes. Yeah, perfectly horrific. Yeah, I, I imagine that well, this is like a, this is a tongue-in-cheek question. Well, uh, yeah, let's take it as that way. Um, it seems that tongue-in-cheek haircuts are kind of like the fashion because nobody really thinks a mullet looks good, right? But everybody seems to have them. All professional rugby players seem to have them. So I think the entire competition is just playing a joke or all of like youth, young society, young society, look at me, I'm so old, um, are playing a joke and everybody else. Yeah. But my my response to that question would be, um, you've gone over to the West Coast as far away from Sydney as you possibly can while staying within Australia. I, for one, have stayed on the East Coast and have stayed with the Waratahs. For okay. me, I would be going the luscious flowing locks of returned saviour oh, Ned Hannigan <laughs> combined with... Charlie Gamble's impeccable moustache. Um, bring the two of those together and it would be a sight to behold. So I think someone needs to do some photoshopping for us to create these looks, but that would be great. That would be uh, the pick that I would be taking. So do you take 
it as is, so Charlie Gamble's moustache, or do you have Ned Hannigan's curly hair in the form of a luscious moustache? No, absolutely not. Um, because I wouldn't want the curly style of moustache. I want I want Charlie Gamble's yeah. straight to the point. Um, considering whether to keep it black or to match it the same color as Hannigan's hair, I think keeping it black would just be even more fun. Yeah. So yeah, yeah I'd go with that. Yeah, so anyway, yeah. Lucy, thank you so much for the question, and um, I really think it's just an opportunity for us to say who we're most in love with as players. Uh, so Mitch, why don't you take us through our social platforms and the Super Bowl Yellow Cap winner for the week? We'll do so. We are on Facebook, we're on Instagram, we're on Twitter. Uh, do give us a like, a follow on all of those platforms. Just search for Pick and Drive Rugby. We should come up quite easily. If we shift across into Super Brew, so the yellow cap this week goes to Razzle Dazzle, who got 9.83 points this round. Well done to you. Followed closely by Scrum Doctor on 9.5 points. Uh, shared that with CJ also on 9.5 points in third place. So well done to all three people there. Uh, doing a lot better than I'm doing, doing a lot better than I think you're doing, Ando, as well. I don't even, <laughs> I've given up in some ways. Like, I'm still putting my tips in, still committed to it, but I just don't even know where I rank on on the overall tally anymore. It's, it's in the hundreds. I haven't checked in a little while where I am. So, yeah, sorry, I can't be specific. I was 86 at last at last check. Um, I'm not confident it's going to be higher than that. Oh, I'm well in the hundreds. I'm probably 115th of 120 or something, so... Uh, well Ooh, done to everyone above me. Uh, if we look at the <laughs> overall leaderboard, in first place, we have Kirando uh, coming in on 84 points. Second place is SDC on 83.58 points. And in third place, Dan Mori on 83.50 points. So very, very wow, close up tight. the top there. It's getting very, very tight. Um, and I guess with a competition like ours, with so many people, uh, when you get the margin points each week it mm. gets shared with that many people that's why we've got sdc on 83.58 points because in one round he's picked up 0.8 of a point so very very <laughs> tight uh we've only got two rounds to go uh in the regular season and then we should we head into finals so kirando has a little bit of a lead there we'll see if he can uh, keep that moving into the finals well, mate, why don't we carry on then? Um, in tonight's show, we'll be covering some obviously incredible spicy news, probably the spiciest of all time within our podcasting career, which is the announcement of the 2027 and 2029 Rugby World Cups going to be in Australia. So we'll have a bit of a chat around that and how hyped we are for that news. We'll then move into the game reviews of both the Wallaroos and Super Rugby Pacific action for the weekend and then finish off with the locker room. Does that sound good, my friend? It does. I'm going to put a little... Uh notice out here now uh last night in sydney so we we're recording on sunday night last night was waratah's home game so we were definitely there on the hill yeah. feel the hill as darren common has been saying all week our voices probably are struggling a little bit today so if we move into this <laughs> next part particularly the news around the world cup uh announcement we probably would like to get loud and and just excited but I don't personally, specifically, I don't think I could get much louder than I currently am. I don't know about you, Ando, but no, my voice is pretty gone, mate. It was a great atmosphere at the game. Um, unfortunately, the Waratahs lost because we had um, Harry Dale, not Nelson Dale. From we had the wrong Dale from, brother from Draft Rugby. So, look, we had the wrong the wrong brother. Maybe we'll just have to swap them out for the final home game against the Blues and see see if that uh, right writes the record. 
I'm still not convinced that they're not the same person. We've not <laughs> seen them both together at the same place. Well, one of them has hair on the top of the head and the other one doesn't, so that's a start. Toupee. Toupee. <laughs> and they've got like a fake beard as well. Yep. They just swap between. <laughs> anyway, 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 let's, uh, let's <laughs> anyway. keep going. We're getting the spicy news and we can t- chat about uh, that all stuff a little bit later. Let's go. All right, let's go. Right, time to get into the spicy news now, and this is probably the spiciest and the most exciting news that we have had to announce since probably doing the podcast for the last three years. So, massive, massive news. Last Thursday night, it was announced that Australia have been confirmed as the host nation for both the men's 2027 and the women's 2029 Rugby World Cups. This is an absolutely massive announcement for uh, rugby union in Australia, but just Australian sport in general. The amount of money it's going to inject back into the game, the amount of interest and fans it's going to get people back watching the Wallabies and really starting to see how they're progressing come 2027 is absolutely huge. What are your key uh, takeaways from this announcement, Ando? And what are you most excited about? Uh, I'm most excited that I'm going to be 40 by the time the World Cup comes to Australia. I will have long service leave. It'll be my 40th birthday, which is a pretty significant one. So I am going to be able to um, basically just take a lot of time off and pay for a lot of the tickets that are going there. So it's just working out absolutely millhouse for me, mate. Very excited. <laughs> and the news of the 2029 Women's World Cup as well is a massive thing for the women's game for the Wallaroos. A lot of water still to go under the bridge in terms of uh, developing the women's side of the game in Australia, but hopefully the announcement that they will be hosting the World Cup there in Australia will mean, will push RA's hand in having to make sure come 2029 that the Wallaroos are competitive. Uh, Very, very exciting for them. I think what we're going to see coming from this announcement is a whole bunch more private uh, sponsorship of the Wallaroos and money pouring into Rugby Australia as businesses, as companies are looking ahead to the windfall that will come from the uh, incredible spectacle that is a World Cup anywhere in the world. And so we're going to see more money being available for the women's program. And that if that doesn't lead towards professionalism of the women's program for rugby in Australia, then nothing will. So I'm very, very excited for that and think that it is the best possible news for women's rugby uh, moving forward. Now, we don't know at this stage what the pool is going to look, the pools are going to look like, what the draw is going to be. But if you could go to any game, any two nations against each other, uh, we might take Australia out of it, two other nations that aren't Australia, who would you want to see play each other at a World Cup uh, game and where would you like to see it hosted? Uh, within Australia, you mean? Yeah, like at the 2027 World yeah. Cup. Yeah, 2027 World Cup. Um, I think a pretty sparsy one would be something like Wales, England. Yes. Um, I'd just go with my mother country versus the enemy. Um, or, uh, I mean, this is... A, a, some of the tier two nations or the the nation, if they get an opportunity to play against each other, would be a lot of fun just because of the party atmosphere that it would be as well, where you've got the teams and the supporters that, I mean, like if it's a team like Namibia or something, they wouldn't realistically be expecting to get out of the pools. 
Um, but they would just relish the opportunity to have a game that they've got a good um, opportunity to win. So something like that, where there's a couple of minnows playing each other would be great to attend to. Um, and if it was for Wales versus England, uh, look, I can't say anything other than Suncorp. Um, yes, I think going cool. to Suncorp for Australian rugby is just a place to be. That'd be great. That would be absolutely awesome. Um, well, let's move on. Then another announcement that has come out today uh, in response to the announcement of Australia hosting the World Cup in 2027 is some news that Rugby Australia, and I don't know if this is actually confirmed as a plan um, or it was just sort of slipped Hamish into... McLennan mentioned it. Hamish McLennan mentioned it when speaking to the press. So a bit of, um, I don't know if it's confirmed as a plan for Rugby Australia is what they're trying to do or just Hamish McLennan did sort of mention it as, as a chance for the future. But what he did mention was trying to lure some of the talent from Rugby League across into Rugby Union to be competitive in the World Cup in 2027 as a home nation. What are your thoughts around this, Andrew? Uh, look, I think that it is just in so many ways the wrong decision. As taking a player from the rugby league system, what it essentially does is argue that the players that we currently have or the players that we may be able to develop and improve on within the next five years aren't of the ability and aren't where we need them to be or we don't believe we can get them to that point within that five-year time period. So all you're basically doing is for any of the 17, 18, 19-year-old players, you're basically saying, we don't think you're good enough moving forward. Uh, on the flip side of it, I actually think that if you look back into the 2000, 2003 World Cup, Wadi Takiri, Wendell Salant, and Matt Rogers mm. actually were, were very good converts. Yeah. Um, and so it may well be that if they could target perhaps two or three key players who maybe have a background in rugby union yep. and have expressed a desire to make this an opportunity and they can land them in the next 12 to 18 months or maybe as, uh, as soon as the World Cup's finished, yep. the 2023 World Cup is finished, um, then maybe they'll have enough time to get up to speed and get up to a good quality. But we've seen with Siliasu Vunavalu that it's really high risk. Like the amount of money you need to pay to get these players across to Australian rugby is astronomical. Um, and it, I mean, any player is at risk of injury. So we've paid, what, $1.8 million for Siliasu Vunavalu, who is only in the last three weeks, he's had a good run yeah. of games and is actually starting to, with this game on the weekend, show a bit of the form that required that much money mm. coming through. I think we do have to take a little bit of awareness of the, the Vunavalu situation that it was unlucky that he has come across and had such a persistent injury over the last two years. Uh, if yeah, you look at it's, Israel it's the Palau run, or um, some of the other players, it, they have made that transition a lot faster and a lot better than what we have seen with Vulavalu. Yeah, yeah. um, like you were saying, Ando, I think it'd be great to have maybe one or two. I wouldn't say three necessarily players come across from league. For me, they would mm. have to be players that have a background in it. So, um, one that I think RA is already going to chase quite hard is Joseph Suwali. He's already shown through his schoolboy talent that he ha he's played union. He's been really good at that level. Um, and he's a massive name in league now that he's playing it. So it it is twofold though. It brings in the league players, uh, the league fans as well to watch these players play in a home World Cup to see how they go. So the more eyeballs on, on the Wallabies performance, the better, in my opinion. The only issue that it does arise for me, and Drew Mitchell did tweet about it this afternoon, was the message that it sends to overseas-based players 
uh, particularly those players mm. who are based overseas who might be looking to come home uh, in the lead up to the World Cup for selection, uh, but they won't necessarily be able to do that if their spots are being filled by uh, yep. league converts, let's say. Um, let's move yep. on from that. I don't think there's much more else to say. And the last bit of news, we did mention this briefly last week and we forgot to expand on it, but an article did come out a few weeks ago by Christy Dorn at Fox Sports and it's not really been picked up by anyone else. He's the only one that's really sort of highlighted this and run with it. I haven't seen it really mentioned in a lot of other mastheads so far, but RA is planning on reigniting the Australia A program, which is a massive uh, development pathway for Australia. And the plan, how it will work, is later in 2022, I believe it's 2022, maybe even 2023, um, they're going to have a Pacific Nations Cup, which will be held, I believe, in Fiji. Uh, there will be four nations involved in that, and Australia A will be one of those nations. So off the top of my head, I believe it's Fiji, Samoa, Tonga, and then Australia A. What are your thoughts yep. around this inclusion? I think it's the um, cheap way of not having an NRC, uh, but still looking towards getting some improvement within the Wallabies uh, matches and um, games and outcomes. I think that we've been talking a long while about how players need to get be getting more game time with some of the other players they'll be competing against in a high, at a higher level or competing with at a higher level. And if we can't have the NRC giving players a lot more professional game time, then then an Australia A program is the much cheaper and potentially next best thing because it is providing them with game time against quality opposition in a high-performance environment. And it means that the players that are just on the cusp or just outside the Wallaby squad still get a bit of a look in and it may well even encourage a few of them to stay around and not take some of the big money um, overseas because they are in the conversation and within this broader Wallabies setup, which can really, in a lot of ways, only be a good thing. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it actually works. Uh, we, in our group chat, have been talking about the logistics side of things. So it looks like if you're a player that's selected in the 30, say, man squad for the Wallabies, you will most likely miss out on actually getting able to play for the Australia A program, considering that the competition will be hosted in Fiji, against the four Pacific or the three Pacific Island nations. Uh, most of the, there's just logistically, it's not going to be able to fly the Wallabies players who aren't making the 23 over to Fiji, play a game or two and then come back. So it looks mm. like it will be a program built around the players who are just outside of that 30 man squad who may be on the cusp and they don't really have anywhere to go once Super Rugby's over. They're not going back to play Shoot Shield or Hospitals Cup isn't good enough for them to develop that talent. So um, great initiative that they're doing this. Um, on the flip side of whether this is going to be up and running or not, I was out at the Moana Pacifica captain's run on Friday and chatting to some of the Tongan and Samoan players out there. They were talking about uh, looking at getting selected for Tonga to play in the Pacific Nations Cup and that they would get to play against an Australia A side. So they're talking about it. So there must be some uh, news and planning behind the scenes, which gives this legs, which is a great thing. Um, let's That's keep fantastic. going. And shall we just move now into the game reviews? Very keen. Let's do it. Let's go.
All right, we now move to the matches over the last week. And to start with, we had the Women's International, the final Warriors match for a little while now, where they came up against the Brave Blossoms Japanese team and they went down 10-12 in a low-scoring but hard match. So this was a really special game for a number of reasons. Um, one, it's obviously a continuation of the comeback of the Wallaroos into international rugby, considering the COVID-enforced absence from the international stage. But also, incredibly significantly, we had the Indigenous jerseys that the Wallaroos were able to wear, um, as well as the second verse of the national anthem being sung in a local Indigenous language. So there was a lot that was incredibly special there. The emotion was plain to see on the faces of the Wallaroos. Mitch, how special was that? Yeah, it was great to see the uh, the players, definitely, particularly some of them who who do have that Indigenous background, getting to run out in the jersey and, and for the first time the Wallaroos have an Indigenous jersey. Um, it's its own strip as well, which was awesome to see. Get to sing uh, the national anthem in that dialect as well, which was awesome. Uh, but apart from that, they really didn't like fire a lot of shots early in this game. It was nil all at half time, and it was only in the second half that points were scored by both teams, and it really became mm. an arm wrestle uh, towards the end there. It sort of felt like both teams didn't want to lose the game, but also weren't willing to take some of the, the shots or the opportunities to try and win the game either. Look, I think what we saw was a really significant improvement with this Japanese team over what we've seen previously. They've obviously benefited from more time together as a squad. Uh, they were really well drilled and played in a, in a very beneficial way for the Wallaroos, a very different game style or game plan to the to the Fijiana team, where they, uh, the Japanese team, they were far more keeping the ball in tight, well-drilled, playing off set-piece to a greater extent than what we've seen with Fijiana. And so it gave the Wallaroos a different test. And if it wasn't for, um, oh my gosh, I'm having a mental... Laurie Kramer. Um, if it wasn't for Laurie Kramer having a really off night with the boot, which is uncharacteristic of her, in my opinion, she is the best place kicker or goal kicker in Australian female rugby. So... For her to have such a poor night and be none from three is really, really disappointing for her own standards. And if that, if those kicks went in or two of the three went in, would want a game. So it, in a game with those really tight margins, those small opportunities are very, very significant. Yeah, that's right. And I don't know necessarily if this is if you can set, put it down to the t the quick turnaround. Um, they did play their first test match on Friday night, and then they're backing up on Tuesday. So. Uh, a four or five day turnaround is quite tight for uh, an international fixture. It, it is great to see the improvement from this Japanese team. I'm just trying to Google it now to f come up with the score the last time the Wallaroos did play Japan in 2019, and it, it's not coming up for me. But uh, from memory, and I was at that game, the Wallaroos, it, it was a, a lot more things were going in their favor that game, and it was a bit more of a higher scoring affair and the Wallaroos ran away with it at the end so the fact that the Japanese team has come together really gelled um, have now beaten Fijiana and the Wallaroos is massive for them leading into the World Cup later in the year uh, it's mm. also cool to see from an Australian perspective that Ben Moham and uh, Beric Barnes are both were both involved with the Japanese women's team in the lead up to this test match. So um, not sure exactly what their roles were and in what capacity, but both of them were around the team 
in the lead up to this test and, and helping out with training and that sort of thing. So that was cool to see as well. Going back to their previous scores, the last two games between the Wallaroos and Japan women were 46-3 to and 34-5 to in favour of the Wallaroos. So I think it just shows a bit of a... Um, it's, it's a bit of a reflection of the lack of game time that this team has had as a squad yep. and opportunities have had to get together. So hopefully they can get more opportunities over the coming um, weeks. We've got the Pacific Four series, which is coming up in June. So there'll be matches against New Zealand, USA and Canada. So that'll be an awesome opportunity in the lead up to the Rugby World Cup in October. So they've still got two, four, six games left before the World Cup begins against some very high quality competition. Yeah, which is awesome. So do get behind this Wallaroos team. Uh, lead everything, every minute of rugby they can get under their belts before World Cup in October is is beneficial for them. 100%. So why don't we move on now to the Pacific, Super Rugby Pacific fixtures. We have the competition really heating up, particularly with the um, basically the scrum or the fight for that eighth spot. Although with the Rebels loss this afternoon, it looks likely that the Highlanders, after their horrific start to the season, are going to be able to scrape into eighth place. Their form has improved as they've been able to play against some more Australian teams. So why don't we actually start off with the Highlanders in the first game of the weekend, which was an absolute drubbing over the Western Force at home at Forsyth Bar Stadium, 61 to 10. This, in some ways, got very embarrassing for the force. Yeah, it didn't. It was, again, one of those games that I don't think the scoreline accurately reflects the performance that the Western Force put in. You look at 61 to 10 and you think, geez, did the force even show up? Like, that's that's a pretty immense scoreline. But it was only really in the last 20 minutes or so that they really started to run away with it. Uh, the, the force did put up an effort, but it just one of those nights things weren't going their way and all those little 50-50 kicks or um, little breaks in in the centers were just the the ball was bouncing the Highlanders way and the luck just wasn't going the Western Forces way in this game. Yep I agree Um, we had a really strong performance in the first half by Ollie Callan there were lots of big raps for him coming into the starting team so it was great to see him be able to step up There was a little bit of controversy near the end with a red card being dished out to Richard Kahui for what a lot of people thought was an unintentional head clash, which it did result in a red card. But quite interestingly, the referees spoke within their uh, deliberations about the consequence for the foul, about the amount of force that occurred through the contact or through the tackle. And as far as I can recall, that's the first time they've ever spoken about Mm. the use of the word force within that conversation. And and that's quite significant. Uh, Mitch, what did you make of that seeming change within a process? Yeah, so one of the things that Ben O'Keefe did say to his um, ARs and the TMO when they were going through the framework was there was a high degree of force exerted from Kahui's uh, shoulders and face into Mitch Hunt's uh, face or where like the, the point of contact, yep. uh, which in some ways we've never actually heard the referees speak about that before. They, If we go back last year in the red card to, Samu, uh, to Corabetti uh, in that French test, they were talking about the distance that Corabetti had 
traveled in a lead up to to making the hit um, against uh, what was his name? Jalonch, was it? Um, anyway, uh, they, maybe yeah. they were they were speaking about the distance and that he came from a far distance at pace to make that hit and that he had the time and the distance to pull out of it and he didn't. They never spoke about how much force was actually conveyed from himself into the the ball carrier. Um, yeah, it's it's different. I don't know if that is a new way of interpretation of how they're uh, adjudicating these high contacts now. Um, and there was one or two mentions of it in other games in the rounds, but there was also some other games where force wasn't taken into um, account at all. So I don't know if yeah. that was just an interpretation that Ben O'Keefe was using in this instant um, or not. I, what, I've what i watched it a few times, and personally, I think it's probably warranted as a yellow card. I, I don't like seeing these types of incidents result in a red card. The, there was uh, a bad outcome for Mitch Hunt. He did lose consciousness nearly immediately and, and mm, got yeah, up yeah, in it was quite a bad way. Um, so yeah. I, I do wonder if Ben O'Keefe did take that into account as well, which they really shouldn't be looking at the outcome of a tackle to, to warrant the severity of the punishment. Correct. I'm going to pause there and actually just jump ahead to the Reds uh, Reds match. So Tate McDermott, when he's clearing up a little chip over the top, I can't remember the specific player that did it, but this is as they're up against the Blues. I think it's a um, Oh, it's a Parafetta. Okay, so the Blues have advantage. Parafetta goes for a chip over the top and um, McDermott comes in and he clears the ball up, but it bounces really high right before it gets to him. So he, being a pretty short guy, has to jump up to be able to reclaim the ball. And as he gets the ball, Perifetta or somebody else, I can't remember exactly who it is, comes in and undercuts him and he lands pretty awkwardly. Um, he doesn't land exactly on his head, but his head does flick back and kind of whiplash back and hit the four pretty hard. Yeah. Um, and the ref just pulls it back for the previous advantage for whatever Offside, infringement that the Reds. Yeah. And Tay McDermott rightly says are you not going to look at that foul play of him taking me out in the air? And he's like, no, we are under advantage. And he's like, that doesn't matter. Mm. If I'd been hurt, did I need to get hurt in a tackle for you to override it for foul play? The incident was foul play. I'm paraphrasing him. It wasn't that long. Um, But it's just really interesting. Obviously, there's this subconscious bias, which I I completely understand, that if a player gets hurt, there must have been an incident of foul play to cause them to get hurt. And so the sanction needs to get higher. But in Tate's case, he was fine. He popped up straight away. But that doesn't take away from the significance of what could have happened because he got undercut whilst he was in the air. I mean, even in the framework, I, I I don't like to say that a referee got a situation wrong. I don't want to sit here and nitpick their performance. But in the framework, uh, a offside advantage is overruled by foul play. So even if he had landed awkwardly and hurt himself, the referee said, it doesn't matter. We were under advantage. So we're going back for the penalty. Well, no. No, the fact is they've committed an act of foul play. That overrides the fact Mm. that the Reds were offside. There was another incident similar to your point in the Waratahs game. Uh, Well, well, two actually. Uh, The Geordie Barrett uh, red, well, the Geordie Barrett hit, which resulted in the red card to Paddy Ryan. So that uh, whole situation happened, and uh, Geordie Barrett lay on the ground waiting for a fair while. To get yeah. up. And then he got and up and ran back into up, the defensive line. He had um, a blood nose and yep. 
the, the trainer came on and cleared it up. And then he got up, got up and played on once the TMO had started looking at the process. Uh, it was very, yep. it, it felt to us and we do have our Waratahs hats on. So we Ooh, were yelling yes. at him to get up and that it felt like he was milking it. But the other situation happened as well um, against Charlie Gamble. There was a massive hit by, I think it was the, the hooker came through and cleaned Charlie Gamble out. And his head smacked back first from the contact but he landed on the on the, his back and his head smacked against the ground. And he jumped up straight away and, and ran off to the next breakdown. I think from memory, it was right before halftime. And that didn't yeah. get looked at. Um, I think if you mm. slow that down, you could probably see that there was contact with the, the head or the, the, um, the chin of Charlie Gamble. But the fact is he got up and played on. So I don't want to say that there is uh, tactics being used by some of the New Zealand players to sort of milk penalties. But when a player stays yep. down after a contact, that's when TMOs and, and assistant referees start looking at things and saying, geez, how did this player get there? Whereas when a player gets up and plays on, it's literally just play on. Yeah, yeah. Well, if we go back to the match itself, um, talking about the Highlanders versus Force, one of the really interesting things that you can draw from this is looking at the stats that the Highlanders had seven line breaks or clean breaks, I should say, to one from the Force. And throughout this whole season, you and I have commented on the fact that outside of Manasa Mateelli and the occasional opportunity from Tony Pillu when he doesn't have an injury that he's trying to overcome, uh, they really don't have any structural organized way of breaking a well-organized defensive line outside of the occasional forward play or like I said, piece of brilliance by Manasa. And so that is obviously an area of concern for them moving forward into the final couple of weeks of the season. But also looking ahead to next year, they're going to be losing Carl Godwin overseas. So who's going to be stepping into that midfield partnership? Who's going to like, is Bailey Kunzel going to keep playing at 12? He hasn't been particularly impressive this season. Maybe another season under his belt will help and having someone that's a big point of difference at 13 outside of him, who knows, but it's, I think that the force have really gone backwards in the latter part of this season, particularly since the announcement that Simon Cron was going to be taking over as coach next season. Yeah, if we if we take a step back from this actual game and the statistics and what actually happened and just look at the overall picture of the season, it is worrying that the Western Force weren't able to get up for this fixture, considering that at on the table, they were still... The Western Force, the Highlanders, and the Rebels are all vying for that eighth place. So you think that mm. they would be doing everything they possibly can to put in a good performance against the Highlanders. Yes, they're playing over in Dunedin. They're playing away from home. But they just didn't look like they had any idea of how to, first of all, stop the, the breaks in midfield that the Highlanders were making, um, but also to counterattack and to make any good meters on their own when they had the ball in hand. Uh, it yep. does feel like this season for the Western Force is coming to a close and that the players are now starting to look more to next year. Um, and it, it really does feel like the air sort of fallen out of the tyres from the Western Force this season. Uh, yeah, which it's is gonna be... disappointing because we had high hopes for them at the start, didn't we? Yeah, we really did. And we want to see a competitive Western Force. They have the talent in this team to, to put in a better performance than they have in the last few weeks. But it's starting to look now like... Tim Sampson is just trying to get through these last few games without causing injuries to players and without getting too big a score put against them. But he's not really starting to like develop co uh, develop combinations or or blood new players. 
it it mm-hmm. definitely look, feels like a team that's kind of waiting for the season to finish before they they start their rebuild next year. It will be really interesting to see in the off season what Simon Cron does with this team, what players he brings into the Western Force from overseas or from some of the other Australian conferences. Uh, Tane Edmed is a player who's off se- uh, off contract at the end of the year, and there's rumours that the Western Force have a bit of money to throw his way should they decide to do that. So really interesting to yep. see what happens and. Um, it doesn't get any easier for the Force either, unfortunately. They've got two big games to end uh, the season coming up next week. Well, why don't we move on to the second match of the round, which was the Brumbies versus the Crusaders down at GIO Stadium. With the Crusaders coming away, deserved winners 37-26 to 26 in what was, in many ways, an incredibly disappointing game from the Brumbies. Without a doubt, they showed heart, but without two of their key players of Noah Lolasiu and Rob Valentini, they were incredibly inaccurate. A couple of early blunders by Rob Yona were very costly, leading to a couple of tries early within the first half. And despite some promising opportunities and capacities to stay in touch with the Crusaders, they didn't have the quality or the composure to get over the line. Watching this game, Mitch, what do you think? Who do you think was a bigger loss, uh, Valentini or Lolasiu? Oh, I, I personally think Lolasio was the biggest loss for this Brumbies team. And we have spoken about it previously in the season when he got that injury earlier on. Um, and Iona came in uh, midway through Super AU, that, that uh, part of the competition. And I think two games he played before Lolasio was back. There's a there's a massive gulf between the two, uh, the two players there. Lolasio is a massive step ahead of Iona currently. Uh, unfortunately the attack just didn't seem to click as well without Lalesio there driving things around and um, kicking the ball and, and sniping like he does and finding those little half breaks that he does in the centers to be able to unlock the players outside him. The The forward pack didn't uh, go backwards in the in this game, so Valentini would have been a good inclusion for his, uh, his running game and his uh, ability to run the ball in the wider channels, but I think they, they still showed up and, and did the best that they could at the set piece. Uh, Noel Alessio not playing was a massive loss for them. Yeah, 100%. I mean, the previous two wins from the Brumbies had come off the back of, without a doubt, forward dominance. And they'd spoken about that previously as an area that they were really wanting to uh, take it to the Kiwi teams. And although they attempted to do the same, they simply don't have another player in a team that's like Rob Valentini, yeah. who has the size or the physicality to be breaking through that defensive line or at least getting over the advantage line within a tackle. And so it just meant that they weren't making those extra couple of meters, forcing the Crusaders defenders to be backtracking those extra few steps, which provides the backs with more time and space. And it was just a bit of a knock-on effect. So for me, the most important player that they were missing was Rob Valentini, Mm -hmm. just for that gain line ball that he does bring them. Now, the key stat from this game, in my opinion, is the turnovers conceded. The Brumbies turned the ball over 16 times compared to nine by the Crusaders. And against a team which is as quality as the Crusaders, I mean, it's basically... Um, the All Blacks starting team, essentially, across both the forward and the backs, they were just way too inaccurate to be able to build sustained pressure. And there were a couple of times within the first half, uh, sorry, within the second half, 
where they tried to mount a bit of a comeback, make an error, and then just get punished immediately by the Crusaders who put on another try. So it was a really, really tough game to watch. I think, and, and for what I've, I've read online, the Brumbies fans aren't too disheartened by this performance. Yes, they didn't win this game, and if they had a full lineup, if they had Lalesio and Bellatini in there, we have, I think, a much tighter game on our hands. Not necessarily saying they win this game, but... I think they come a little bit closer. They still didn't. They didn't allow the Crusaders to get a bonus point victory against them, which was great. Um, I think they just missed out on getting a bonus point themselves. What is it's eleven points, so um, they weren't within that seven point range. Uh, but there's signs from this team that they were fighting. They were fighting very hard in those last 15, 20 minutes. Tom Wright scored that try in the seventy first minute that just sparked things, and all of a sudden they they seem to re re-engage and reinvigorate themselves and we're starting to make some good momentum again. Um, mm. So on the table, they're still sitting above the Crusaders. They're in second place currently. The Crusaders are in third. So they've done enough to keep them... Actually, no, sorry. The Crusaders have jumped. Their... No, Brumbies are ahead of them. Brumbies are ahead. Well, what I've got in front of me now says Brumbies below the Crusaders, but I think technically, I think this is wrong. I, had, I think I yeah, saw I think a, a tweet a... from um, Brett, Brett, Brett McKay actually saying that the Brumbies should be in second place because they're both tied on 43 points, but the Brumbies have more wins. So, um, yeah, yep. the Brumbies are actually in second place. Crusaders in third. So they've done enough to keep that for now. They've got two big games coming up this next two weeks, um, and they're really in the box seat in, in terms of finishing off this season. I think they, from memory, they play the Blues next week. And then maybe Moana the week later. So yeah. um, that's going to be a tight game against the Blues. But Moana Pacifica, they should get that done with a bonus point win. So they're, they're sitting well. Um, they should have Noah Alessio back next week. Valentini hopefully isn't out for the rest of the year. I think it's just a, a hamstring twinge. Uh, but we should hopefully have him back soon. So... Um, the the question that I had from a game management perspective, and you need to answer this for me, Ando, because he's your boy, Ryan Lonigan. He's my boy. Ryan Lonigan, at the end of the game, I think it's the, 70, uh, the 81st minute, the Brumbies are on attack, and they've got the ball at the back of a ruck, and he just chips it over the top and gives the possession back to the Crusaders, and they kick it dead. Why did he do that when they're pushing for... If they get another three points there within seven points, and they get a bonus point. Why did he just essentially kick the ball away and, and almost give up? It's probably just a bad decision, to be honest. Um, it's a player who's just in the singular moment made the wrong call. I mean, we saw Jack Grant do that for the Waratahs earlier in the season where he went for a snipe down the blind side in a kind of couple of minutes of extra time when the Waratahs had a chance to steal the game. And he, he kind of got panned a little bit by some fans who were just well not not like we just pointed out it was a wrong decision to make yep. um it, it was a bad call bad decision and so that's the case with this one as well i don't think Lonergan's form's been actually that crash hot this season um i don't think he's like i still love him dearly and he's my boy but i don't think he's at the same heights as he was at previously um in kind of early 2022 or throughout 2021 yep. so yeah Honestly, mate, to answer your question, just a bad decision. It happens. Fair enough. Even Fair to the best enough. of us. And Ryan Wanigan is the best. He is the best of us, is he? One last <laughs> point around, uh, and, and this is a point that we might touch back on as we go through this pod. And uh, you mentioned earlier that there's this sort of 
inherent it feels like there's a unconscious bias in terms of referees when it comes oh. to New Zealand teams against Australian teams and one of the frustrations I had from this last game from this game was in the last three minutes of the game the Brumbies are hot on attack they've got a full arm penalty on the uh, I think they're probably eight nine meters out they kick to the corner but Angus Gardner decides he wants to chat to uh, the Crusaders captain, which at that point was Scott Barrett, and he goes over and has this like long-winded chat, which is a 30, warning. 45 seconds or something? And it, it lasts about 45 seconds, and the clock's ticking the whole time. And he's like, you know, we're in the 22. There's been a few over there. There's a, uh, a breakdown over there was offside. Like, he goes through it. And then Scott Barrett says something else to him and tries to keep the conversation going. But Angus needs to call time off. He needs to have yep. awareness in that, in, in that situation that the game's on the line here. The Brumbies want every single second they possibly can. And the Crusaders got about a minute um, out of the referee there. When they yeah. tried to take it yeah. quickly and go and he told them no, he wants to talk to them and give them a warning. It's just frustrating because I guarantee if that was reversed, someone somewhere would have said something to the referee if it's a touchy or someone said, the you know, the, the clock's still going. Let's just call it off and keep, <laughs> keep talking to him. But it doesn't yeah, happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, there's a couple of other quick fire points that I want to make just about this game before we move on. And one of that, one of them is similar to what you're talking about. In the first couple of minutes of the game, Brumbies make a line break through. Um, maybe they don't make a line break, but it was a really good sequence of play in the first couple of minutes. And they get all the way up to the Crusaders line off this really, really good passage of attacking play. And a Crusaders player just cynically infringes at the ruck, slows the ball down, gets a penalty called against them. And then they have the opportunity to realign their, um, their line. And that was just so incredibly frustrating because you could see it happen in real time that the Crusaders were on the ropes and then immediately they give away a penalty to slow the game down about eight metres out from their own line. And for me as an Australian rugby fan, we, we can see exactly what the Kiwis are doing. In this case, the Crusaders are doing it's cynical. Give them a yellow card in that. It doesn't matter that it's the first time it's been down there. You don't have to give warnings before you give a yellow card for cynical play. So that's just one point I want to quickly put out there. Second point, how good was Tom Wright in and out on Richie Malonga? <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's like, I didn't know which way he was going to go, but made, makes that break. Richie Malonga's there and I thought, oh, he's got Rich, Richie's going to smoke him here in a second. And does the the little side in out in, in and out, out, in out and, in. and then gets yeah. outside him and scores a try. Fantastic! Need to see more of yeah. that. Thanks. <laughs> he he had a great game. Couple of uh, really good moments um, where it's kind of like the show and go um, to get some extra meters when covering in a backfield. Wright had a good game. He might well be playing himself into a starting jersey. Who knows? Who knows for the Wallabies, obviously. But let's move on now to the next game of the weekend. And you're actually at this game, my friends. So this was yeah. the Moana, well, Fijian and Drua versus Moana Pacifica. And this was at Combank Stadium on Saturday afternoon with the Ndrua running away 34-19 victors. Now, at this game, mate, why don't you very briefly talk to us about maybe the crowd and the atmosphere? Because from what I hear, it wasn't what we were expecting. Yeah, look, uh, it's always going to be a, a bit of a tough ask to host the first game of the Pacific, Fijian and Drew against Moana Pacifica in Sydney and expect a massive crowd to turn up. If this was played in Apia, in Tonga, in Samoa, in Fiji, this would have been a sellout four times over. 
I guarantee it. Uh, there was, like, the stadium was only half open. You couldn't even sit down the other end if you wanted to. Uh, and in that, with, with half the stadium open, it was even half full. So it was uh, unfortunate that they couldn't get a better crowd turn up to, to support them. The crowd that did turn up was very vocal. We did say earlier in the year when the Waratahs played the drill in the first uh, Super Rugby round that the crowd was vocal but didn't have a lot to cheer for. It was great in this game because the Indrua were mostly on top of Moana for the majority of the game and scored some really good tries, particularly against the run of play, which just had everyone up or out of their feet dancing and singing and laughing. So it was fantastic to be there. It was a great atmosphere. Uh, and in some ways I was kind of hoping Moana would put in a better performance than they did. Yeah. And I think that's, um, one of the things I actually thought Moana were going to be stronger than they were. Um, they have, I think probably been a more consistent team across the competition. The Indrua have had some very, very strong performances, maybe not always coming away with the win, but shown, um, their their strength on more occasions whereas moana i think have been more consistently at a good level yeah um but it might well be that it's the end of a long first season with a lot of challenges particularly thrown moana's way in terms of COVID enforced um scheduling changes so maybe maybe they're running out of a little bit of steam it, uh, it, it often felt like uh mick burn had just said to the enjoyer just have fun and just do what you want. We're playing against the our Pacific brothers. This is a great game. Everyone's going to be up for it. They don't necessarily have the polish yet to punish us like some of the other super sides do. So there was a lot of instances in this game of the Indrua players doing things that you probably wouldn't do against, say, the Hurricanes or the Crusaders. They were going for the intercepts. They were getting, um, they were they were they were kicking the ball through from passes like they weren't even intercepting it with their hand they'd kick it through themselves i think they scored two yep. tries through through those methods so um just very keen to get their hands on the balls up in moana's face trying to get their hands on the ball and getting those turnovers um very physical as well there was some massive massive hits we were on the second level of combank stadium behind the goalposts, and there was a few hits in front of us and we felt the ground shake that's how big it was <laughs> Huge, huge. Well, um, well done to the Fijian and Drua for that win. And we might move on now to the second game for the afternoon, which was the Blues versus the Reds. With the Blues coming away fairly dominant, 53 to 26 victors against the Reds. I watched the first half of this game and then moseyed on down to Leichhardt, so we didn't catch the second half. Um, but it seemed to be within the first half a fairly even encounter. What went wrong? Uh, the Blues just started to get a, a head of steam up and the, the passes were sticking. The the ball was bouncing their way. There was a few times where Bowden Barrett chipped it through and the ball just perfectly bounced towards him and away from the the fullback for the Reds and, and in his arms and he, he crosses the line for a try. So uh, again, the rugby gods seemed to be favoring the Blues in this encounter and the Reds were in it as much as they could have been. Uh, but yeah, they just didn't quite have the... The full squad um, that we have known the Reds to be successful, like we've they've got a few players out with injury, uh, mm -hmm. and I mean James O'Connor, Hunter Paisami back this week, they helped a lot. We will speak about it in a little bit. James O'Connor definitely unleashed the backs a lot better than um, what we have seen in the last few weeks, and that's one thing that they've been missing. 
But the Blues, just in every other facet of the game, were just way, way, way ahead of the Reds and um, everything was coming off for them. Yeah. I mean, look, this was a really challenging match because coming into it there without Taniela Tupo, Fraser McWright, Harry Wilson, and just having three of your top forwards unavailable is really significant. Um, one of the pleasing things that we did see was Siliasu Vunavalu having far more um, activity and going looking for the ball. We sometimes expect that from the uh, style of wingers that maybe are more a power winger, much like Marika Coronambete. Mm. So having Siliasu getting a little bit more comfortable, third game back from injury, um, gaining more confidence, and he scored a good try kind of in close and had a couple more opportunities where he went very close. And it just demonstrated for me just a bit more positive engagement rather than just standing out on a wing and waiting for the ball to get to him, which hadn't been happening previously. He'd obviously been given the instruction to roam and he actually did so quite effectively. He still needs to fix up his body height issue. There was a few times where we went into contact standing nearly too upright and um, the Blues were able to hold him up and essentially start a maul and get the turnover. So I think he'll yeah. work on that. That's just one of the yep. uh, the little changes that comes from union to league. In league, you can go into contact standing upright and it doesn't really matter. Uh, but yeah, fantastic to see him with uh, like hitting the line at pace, taking two or three defenders with him and still being able to get the ball free and, and down for a try. Uh, he's starting to show some of that skill that we know he's capable of and just hasn't been able to unleash in the last few weeks. Yeah, uh, one of the quick comments as well. Um, for Sully, if you're listening, mate, we love you. And this is just friendly advice on and where we resign. think you could be we improving you your game. game. Yeah, it'd be good. Uh, just at a bit of a cheaper cost, if that's okay. Um, <laughs> but I think he also needs to um, stop attending so many rucks. I know that might sound a bit weird, but there were just a couple of times where like, he um, was trying to follow through and was just on the shoulder of the player that was um, taking the ball up for the hit and like, maybe looking for the offload. But then a couple of times I watched him um, follow the rucks and provide a little bit of ruck cover for three or four sequential rucks and i'm like mate you're one of our power runners like once the ball's secured get out of there get back into the line and be looking to take the ball it's like when taniela tupo is doing a clear out i'm like mate you shouldn't be doing a clear out you're you're the one that's meant to be lining up for the next mm. hit in my mind yep. um but that's just a small thing um it was really really pleasing to see him have a bit of a big, bit better game and how much more uh effective do the reds look with james o'connor at yeah. 10 well, they just look, they, they grow another leg and they keep in the fight. Last last few weeks with him out, it seemed like it got to the 60th minute. The teams had put a fair, significant gap between them on the scoreboard and heads started to drop and they kind of, they weren't pushing as hard as they have. James O'Connor's back this week and they played full 80 minutes. They scored some tries mm. right at the end and were uh, making the Blues pay for their mistakes late in the game. It's obviously still far enough behind they couldn't catch up, but their the heads didn't drop. The the leadership that was has been lacking for the last few weeks was clearly on display. Yeah, the big area of um, worry was the 10 minutes or 15 minutes after the first half. So basically between 40 to 55, 60 minutes, the Blues scored three tries, one to Caleb Clark, Bowden Barrett and Stephen Perifetta in the 43rd, 45th and 57th minute. And that's just not good enough. You can't be letting a Kiwi team be putting on 15 to 20 or so points uh, in such a short time period, especially when you should be refocused and you should have had an opportunity to kind of reorganize yourself, refocus and have a clear understanding of what you need to be doing moving forward as a team. And then to come out of the 
come out of the sheds and just um, have the, that many points put on you is obviously disappointing. That'll be an area for them to be looking at moving forward. But I think for the Reds, this this poor run of form has coincided with coming up against the some pretty decent Kiwi teams, obviously, but just also having some of their key players unavailable from injury. It's I. It's been what five weeks since they've had a full strength team on the park. Yep. Yep. Something like yeah. that. Five. Yeah, it's been a long time, and so. Um, I think we're just seeing again, like if if the Australian teams have their match fit twenty three available to play these Kiwi teams, we can beat them, without a doubt. We can beat them. Not yeah. saying we will every time, but we can. Um, but as soon as a few of the top players start going down with injury, then the job just becomes that much harder and is that much more unlikely to happen because we don't have the squad depth um, that the Kiwi teams do. Yeah, I think in some ways it's a good. It's good timing that they have Moana Pacific this coming weekend. They will be they will have Harry Wilson and Fraser McWright back. They've got James O'Connor back. I don't know if Hunter Paisami got injured in this game, but he was he didn't play the full eighty minutes. Um, I I didn't see. I don't him. think he did. I haven't heard anything. About okay, it. so that's good that they can have both those impact players back as well. So um, a good chance to put in a good performance, finish the game. Um, uh, finish the season hopefully on a high and then refocus coming into finals. All right, we move on now to what, in my opinion, was the game of the weekend with the Waratahs facing up against the Hurricanes in Leichhardt Oval. And both you and I and a whole bunch of people were there for what was a cracking encounter. Hashtag I believe the fill fi- the hill. Fill the hill and about 11,000 people were at this game, which is an awesome number. Really, really good crowd. We also... Had um, Kagi and Harry from Draft Rugby. We had Sheepy join us. My mate Dan came along as well. Your brother was there and your dad. Yep. Had a whole bunch of the Draft Rugby um, mates too. It was a really, really good time there. Um, so, look, next guy, next game we've got two weeks' time is against the Blues at Leichhardt. Uh, make sure you feel the hill get out to that one because it'll be the last opportunity most likely to cheer on the Waratahs at home this yep. season. So... Make sure you go to that match. But anyway, the game itself was, um, look, one, one of the things I used to um, love, there can be like a drinking game you do for commentary or match reviews. And one of the ones that you'd always have to take a drink at is when a commentator describes in the post-match um, debrief the, um, the, the it being a quintessential game of two halves. Unfortunately, this actually was a game of two halves where the Waratahs really dominated the first half. And that is no exaggeration. They were dominant in the first half, but were only able to get up a um, 15-point lead over the Canes. And then the Canes came out, and it's though Artie Sevilla just decided on his own that he was going to just drag the rest of the Hurricanes team kicking and screaming over the winner's line. He was immense in that second half. Yeah, it was uh it was telling in the 33rd minute that the Hurricanes changed their two props. Uh mm. up until that point the Waratahs had had if not every scrum, 95% of the scrums in the game the Waratahs had got a penalty from that uh, Angus Bell and Archie Holtz just had the the measure of the Hurricanes props and were getting uh they were popping them up or wheeling them around or pushing them off the ball and just winning everything they possibly could at scrum time up until that point. And then the the Hurricanes bring on Owen Franks and I can't remember who the other the player was, but uh, two All Blacks players on the front in the front row. And from the thirty third minute on, I don't think the Waratahs won another scrum. 
Um, it was very US Tevita Mathaleo. Yeah, so it was very telling that that was a key changing point in the game. And um, Jake Gordon even said in, afterwards in the in the post match uh, press conference that he would have liked to have seen the Waratahs get a little bit more pay uh, from their scrum mm-hmm. dump scrum dominance early in the game. There was a period where there was about four or five penalties in a row uh, from scrums, particularly without any sort of sanction or yellow card or even a warning from the referee. So, um, yeah, yep. in regards to that quite frustrating but geez letting in 22 unanswered points in well i think they scored three points but 22 points in the second half and and it was really only in the 76th minute i think it was that Adi Sevilla scores that try and they go ahead um it was only then that they actually got ahead on the scoreboard and it, it really sort of broke all Boratar's hearts all over the world <laughs> particularly all over the hill, mate. It was it was it was pretty desperate there uh, at the end of the second half. But one of the really encouraging things was just the quality of that first half performance. Um, obviously, obviously the Waratahs didn't win, but there's a lot to take heart from. The fact that Archer Holtz, who uh, really I would have been surprised to see him in a 23 at the start of the season, mm. was able to, alongside Dave Parecki and Angus Bell, dominate, ab- absolutely dominate the Hurricanes front row, was really, really impressive. Uh, and there has been some interesting analysis of some of uh, Owen Franks's scrum time shenanigans when he came on because... I struggle to understand how a player such as Angus Bell, who's been holding the scrum up and dominating his opposing player, can, as soon as somebody else comes on, just be dropping his bind or having his feet slip out underneath him every single time and that be his fault, mm. you know? Um, so there's there's been some interesting analysis or uh, look at that from people who know a bit more about the dark arts than I do, looking at how um, Owen Franks was actually, um, he was setting himself at a later point than Angus Bell and actually getting his hips up a bit higher. So he was driving down a bit further, but then drawing himself back as the contact was made, which was forcing Angus Bell to overextend um, and therefore lose his feet. So actually it was kind of, um, it, it was a very experienced display of scrummaging uh, deception, in my opinion. And that's, that's, that's a credit to Franks for knowing what he's doing. And hopefully um, Angus Bell, who has improved in leaps and bounds with his scrummaging in the last 18 months, will uh, be red with fury and will learn from this experience and uh, come up with some techniques to prevent that in the future. Yeah. And I mean, we've got to, we've got to be as Waratahs fans really hopeful in that first half that we were able to keep the New Zealand and New Zealand team scoreless Uh, Mm. really, really massive signs from them defensively and also an attack that we kind of had the measure of them in all areas of the game in that first half. And it was only in the second half when the reserves started to come on that things shifted in the Hurricanes' favour. Darren Coleman also said in the in the press match after the game that it, it wasn't so much that the Waratahs stopped doing what they were doing in the first half. It was more that the Hurricanes shifted to another level and the Waratahs yeah. weren't able yep. to step up and match that level and go yep. with them and ride that through, uh, which they did do a few weeks ago against the Crusaders. Yeah, uh, I think that maybe speaks to... And look, Darren Coleman in a post-match presser was really... Angry. He was... He was... Yeah, look, I'm not sure if he was angry. angry. He was yeah. He was frustrated. He was disappointed, without a doubt. He was also somewhat pensive and reflective by saying, look, it, 
they're they're going to be looking ahead to the next couple of weeks. It's highly unlikely they're going to finish in a top four now, and there's not that much of a difference between finishing fifth and eighth. So in his mind, he's going to look at resting a couple of players who have had really, really large minutes over the season, players like Jed Holloway, Angus Bell, Charlie Gamble come to mind. And it might well be that um, it's just getting to the point where those players aren't able to keep up the same level of intensity throughout the full um, 80 minutes just because they're out on their feet. So fitness is an issue or workload is also an issue. So that's something to be considering as well. Um, I mean, the fact that we could realistically go into this game and have a decent expectation of getting up over the Hurricanes speaks absolute volumes to where this team has come over the last 12 months. So huge, huge credit to both um, Darren Coleman, the coaching team and the players themselves for the rejuvenation that this team has made. And the and towards the end of this game, there was a few decisions that were made by key players in the Waratahs team that had they had their time back, they probably would have done <laughs> differently. Um, I don't think I've ever seen a second rower take a quick drop out from his own goal and get the ball out in goal. Um, but we've seen it, <laughs> it now, went backwards. So... It went backwards. <laughs> uh, and you know what? Like. That was such a crucial moment, right? What was it? 77th moment, minute of the game? Um, Something like that. And when that happened, I actually just burst out laughing. I just burst out laughing because I wasn't angry because it was just comical. It was just ridiculous that this had happened. And I was like, well, I don't think we're ever going to see an event like that again. It's kind of like Matt Dunning and his drop goal to lose the game. <laughs> um, you just don't expect an event like that to happen on a rugby field. And we saw it and we were there, mate. So how's that for a bit of Waratah's history? Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. I love that that's the history that we're looking out for. Um, that being said, though, Jed Holloway had an absolute cracker of a game. And dear God, I think his pass on the break out to Dylan Peach on a wing is maybe the best second row pass I can remember seeing. What's the first one? No, no, I'm saying it is the best. Oh, I second thought you said it was the pass. second. Sorry. Yes. No, yeah, come on, no, pay um, attention. Um, uh, <laughs> like 25 meters sideways. To... Oh, and he threw it so far, like out in front of Dylan Peach, who was running on at full pace to it. Like it was just the perfect ball out in front of an oncoming winger. It was, it was beautiful. It was like Finn Russell-esque where he's passing into space rather than to where the player is, you know? Yeah. Um, and that, that was just brilliant. I kind of want to um, soothe my memories of his uh, drop kick with just replay after replay of that <laughs> pass. That's right. We'll, uh, we'll forget that other fact happen and just think about the, <laughs> the fantastic pass out to Dylan Peach. But um, I think we've spoken enough about the Waratahs. Is there anything else just like quickly. final points you wanted to wrap up? Yeah. Yeah. Just to wrap up very quickly, both Lalakai Fichetti and Izzy Parisi had absolute incredible games. Um, Paris, uh, Fichetti within the first three touches made three line breaks. Um, he was just on fire and making finding gaps in the Hurricanes' defence for fun. Parisi also, his offload to set up the try to, who was it? Peach. Who got the try off him? Was it Peach again I as think, well? Yeah, I think that um, was the try that was, was Yeah, true. We won't go back for the one that wasn't. Um, and that was that was absolutely brilliant. Unfortunately, it looks like he's got a pretty significant MCL injury. We were with Harry from Draft Rugby, who's a physio, and he was kind of Super watching physio. the physios. He was, he was watching... Um, the treatment of 
um, Parisi and saying, not nah, not ACL, ooh, might be MCL, yeah, okay. And then in the post-match presser, Darren Coleman, um, Darren Coleman confirmed that it was an MCL injury, although the news that's coming out today indicates he may well be able to get back for a finals match. Um, yep. It looks to be on a kind of about a four-week turnaround, and if everything goes incredibly well, he might well get back for three weeks. Yeah, Harry so, did say it was we'll good see. that he was able to walk off the field in, on his own. Um, yeah. Obviously yep. gingerly, but he was able to do that, which he said is a good sign that he didn't have to be he was able to put weight on it. So that that hopefully means that he's, he's only out for three to four weeks. Um, okay. Well, you good to move on from here, mate? I was just going to say it was it was great to see um, Donaldson come on and, and have a, an impact in that second half. But I really, we've been talking all year about who is the best 10 at the moment for the Waratahs. Is it Edmed? Is it Donaldson? But it really felt like in that first half, Edmed was the one that was putting those outside backs into space. He was taking mm. the line on and providing the opportunity for Parisi, for Ikatao, for Peach, uh, Nwanganitawasi to a lesser degree to get onto the ball in space and make those meters. Uh, Donaldson didn't have that same impact in the second half. So interesting to see uh, what happens in the next few weeks and how things progress. But at the moment, uh, Edmed seems to be shaping as the, the option for that first pick. Which is interesting because he was at the bottom of the list of the three. Yeah, he was. And it's only the injuries that have enabled him to get this opportunity. And he's been brilliant. I mean, looking at Parisi, with his injury out, do you, do you move Donaldson into 10 and then Edmed out to 12? Because, I mean, as Dono said in a preseason chat that we had with him earlier earlier in the year, he sees himself as an out-and-out out 10. And it's more kind of Tane, who's a 10-12, and Will, who can play at 15 a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, I, I personally like Tane more at 10. I think he's having, mm, as I said, he's too. having that impact there. And yeah. Donaldson's a bigger player. He's just physically bigger and taller than than Edmed is. So it might be better. And I know Donaldson hasn't played a lot of center, but he might just be able to be that big ball runner like what yep. Parisi's doing at the moment and just hit the hit the line at pace and, and take the ball a few meters forward. Massive, massive uh, fixture coming up next week against the Highlanders, which we'll chat about a little bit later. Yep. Well, why don't we move on to the next game, which was, well, I guess it's the final game as well. The Rebels coming up. Was the match the of the round. <laughs> you know what? It turned out to be in some yeah. ways. Um, and it went down to the final minute of the game where the Rebels went down 30 to 33 against a last minute try for the Chiefs to steal the game. It was a heartbreaker, but so much credit to the Rebels for pushing this one right to the edge. They were something like $8 outsiders to actually win this match. Um, and look, there's there's a lot to be said. Maybe this was a poorer performance from the Chiefs, but the Rebels took every opportunity that was presented to them and played a really good game. Yeah, Carter Gordon at 10 has just gone leaps and bounds in the last few weeks. And it, it's the game time that we've been talking about from the beginning of the season that he just needs to get. Get him game time at this level in the 10 jersey he will get better mm. and we're starting to see mm. that the yep. intercept try that he scored in the first half that's really gutsy to to yeah. jump off the line and, and attempt that for uh, a 10 of his age and his uh, uh i guess background or development how he's been handled at the rebels so really really good to see him have a really good performance for the rebels heartbreaking that they weren't able to 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 ice this game and get the victory. I was really, really hoping that they were able to get that. But um, 
coming into it, I think I think I said on the draft rugby pod earlier last week that I just couldn't see how the Rebels were going to attack this Chiefs team at all. That they they have great personnel across the park, but they just don't they don't have the overall talent I didn't think to really challenge a team like the Chiefs, who we know have put in some good performances the last few weeks. Um, I'm happy to eat my eat my words here and say that the Rebels really fronted. Uh, Pone Farmasili, Caboose Eloff, these guys were just at Rob Liotta as well. Those yeah, three guys yep. around the park were just putting in the biggest hits, absolutely creaming blokes left, right, and center. And um, they really had the Chiefs rattled for a, lot, a large part of this game. Can I just say that Pone Farmasili's yellow card was an absolute joke so yeah okay given a penalty for being offside for the hit on Akoi but then Josh Lord comes over and gives him a push as he's getting up um Falmacilli then as he's running away shoves him back Lord chases him and they get into a little bit of a verbal altercation and then they only look at Farmacilli's push on Josh Lord they're like where's the yeah where's the instigating push like like, Farmacilli, okay, yeah, shouldn't have retaliated all that crap that I say as a teacher. Um, but the reality is that Josh Lord started that by being the one to run in and push. And I just thought that was really poor officiating. Um, just have a word to Farmacilli and say, cool, it. big hit, that was legal, keep the other stuff afterwards, otherwise I'll be giving well, wasn't penalties or you'll get a card. wasn't he the first hit as well? Yeah, 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 he was, yeah. he was. Um, but so that was he was the, offside, yeah. That was what the referee was saying in his decision to red yellow card him. He said he's offside, he's put in the big hit, and then he started a brawl. But he didn't. Um, yeah, that's just bad officiating. <laughs> I've got to say, it's one, just bad officiating. Anyway, anyway, yeah, I've got to say one thing that, and uh, both games actually, the Waratahs game and this game was quite frustrating in two different uses of the TMO. So in the mm, Waratahs, mm. we said we wouldn't talk about it, but I'm bringing it up. Um, the disallowed <laughs> try to Dylan Peach, which was technically kicked back into the scrum by Jake Gordon. The ball pops out and he toes it back in and then yep. then plays it. It, it spreads wide. The referee, So it becomes TM- obstruction because he's put it back in. Huh? Yep. I mean, technically, yep. it's right. I've got no issue with that being called disallowed as a try. I'm just a little bit frustrated in the officiating process. So in that instance, the referee has awarded the try and didn't think there was any issue. The TMOs reviewed it and said, okay, actually, let's look at this and put it up on the big screen. The referee has decided, yes, he's towed it back in, which then puts, I think it was Will Harris or Vossiatho um, offside. And so it's no try and it's a penalty to the Hurricanes. So that's fine. But he's viewed the the footage and he's overturned the referee's decision. That he's That's t- allowed... No issue with that. There was another instance in the game where Jake Gordon gets tackled short and then gets carried over the try line by, I think it was Sam Kane, and he ends up actually grounding the ball in goal. But the referee, and I don't know if you've seen this, Andrew, if you've gone back and watched it, the referee disallows the try, and Gordon's like, but I've got it down. He says, no, you were carried over the line by White. You were dragged in. Now, there's no rule in the book that says that if the opposition player drags you in goal and you ground the ball, that it's not a try. Um, that's just their mistake for doing that. So it's very similar to the situation that happened in this game where uh, Matt Phillip uh, gets tackled. Clearly and gets the ball down. Gets actually. the ball down. And yep. the referee says, no, you're short. And you've reached out. It's no try. And goes straight back and says, you know, we're, we're playing a penalty 
you've you've, in, you've caused an infringement without there. using going, the TMO. Yeah. Yeah. And so in those instances, the TMO has the ability to watch those replays and so actually know the try has been scored. You can't overturn it. Why are they not in, in getting involved in that situation? That's what's frustrating. Mm. Like that's a try. Why is the TMO not coming in and saying, okay, actually, that's a he's got that. He's not short, like you've said. He's got the try. Let's just review yep. that. If he's going to yep. come in and say that it's not a try, if the opposite has happened and they've scored the try, then you need to get involved as well. That's really frustrating because both games, like both games would have resulted in a win to the Australian side had the TMO got involved and awarded the try. Yeah, well, possibly. I mean, it always changes the next up events. Well, if you look at the, the final but, score, but, yeah, right? Like, yeah, yeah, I know, but it's never as simple as that. It's never as simple as that because the game would have worked out differently. Yes, but I, I hear the point that you're making. Um, and I actually agree with it. One of the problems is, in my mind, that there's like the TMOs allowed to look at foul play and um, to look at the last couple of phases before a try and find any infringement within that. Within like, two, no, stop that within two phases in a build up to a try. Um, I'm just like, why don't you just say can only adjudicate on issues of foul play in the lead up to a try or unless directly called upon by the referee? Yeah, exactly. In my mind, that's fine because I'm not expecting perfection from referees. Genuinely, I'm not. What I'm hoping for is that annoying buzzword of consistency in particularly in TMO involvement and interventions. Um, so when does the TMO come in? When do they not? Uh, what are they allowed to adjudicate on? I feel like it either lacks clarity or is just illogically applied at times. And that's something that could pretty easily be fixed to improve the viewer experience. Um, do you mind if we have a couple more comments about the game before we yep. move on? Yep. yep. Okay. So in my mind, Rob Liotta, fantastic absolutely killer game and um he has been just a piece of the forwards puzzle that the rebels have missed for so much of the season yep. his carrying work was excellent his gain line advantage or ability to get that advantage was really really impressive so super super well done um apart from that i thought pony Famasili probably had one of his stronger games that he's had in a really long time um and like we mentioned before carter gordon was absolutely brilliant and really really deserved all the plaudits that he got uh after the game i do want to say I'm, i am a little bit worried about matt tamua and not only just yeah, from so, a like yeah, a, his performance yeah. but he had a head knock what's four or five weeks ago now a uh, super round so that was mm. the first round of crossover and this is the fourth game off memory yep. is it um so yep. four weeks he's sitting on the sideline with concussion issues just from a player welfare perspective it's not great to see a player of matt Tamua's potential and ability not be able to play the game um i would hate hey, hate to yeah, see yeah. Uh, a situation arise similar to dane hale at petty where he's not able to get back on the field the ESPN article that I'm taking a look at at the moment does mention that he's likely to be able to travel with the team in their upcoming match yep. um, next week. I think they're playing the Hurricanes in Wellington. Um, is that is that correct? Is that correct? Let me just quickly skip. Yes, they are. So that that's at least positive in that's that. Um, yeah, uh, mumbling all my words. It's a good thing that he's actually able to get back on the park, hopefully, next week. Yep. Uh, and we should actually just quickly point out, um, we had a couple of incredible performances from Simsoni Takiaho as well, the hooker for the Chiefs, who was excellent, um, as well as Josh Lord, who had a direct hand in three of... Sorry, Josh Iwani, I should say, who had a hand in three of the tries. But he also gifted two 
with a pass out the back that Kellaway was, was able to kick through and score a try off, as well as Carter Gordon's intercept. Um, there, and then when you can't take into account Reese Hodges' try as well, with the big up and under that the Chiefs just failed at and absolutely blanked on um, to get the try, all three of the Rebels' tries came from very poor mistakes from the Chiefs. Yep. So that's just an interesting thing to consider that the competitiveness of the Rebels was to a fairly strong degree a result of Chiefs' mistakes and two of them which weren't directly based upon defensive pressure by the Rebels either. Um, so maybe that's something, whilst the Rebels can definitely take heart in a close performance and a much improved team effort, they do need to keep working on their capacity to mm. um, break the defensive line of the opposition team. Yeah, and I think we've, we have said in the last few weeks that we the Rebels have missed the players that they've had on the bench, Rob Lioda, Pone Famicilli. So having those big players back, the influence that they've had on the team, the go-for that they've given um, the, the team around them, the ability for the outside backs to go looking for breaks and things, uh, it's what this Rebels team has been missing in the last few rounds. So great to see them be able to get those players back and start to put in some good performances. Shall we quickly go through the games this coming weekend before we dive into the locker room? Yep, very quickly. Then let's get to the part that is the most fun, which is the locker room. Awesome. So Friday night, we have the Crusaders hosting the Fijian Indrua at Orange Theory Stadium. That's a 5.05 p.m. kickoff um, in Sydney. Uh, the second game of the round of, for Friday night is the Reds hosting Moana Pacifica. So hopefully that one is a good victory for the Reds, can get them back on track, particularly leading into the finals, which they will play this year. Um, Saturday, we have the Chiefs hosting the Western Force at Waikato. Uh, second game of the round, Hurricanes hosting the Rebels uh, in Wellington. We then finish things off uh, at GIO Stadium, where the Brumbies are hosting the Blues. Now, this is a massive, massive game for the Brumbies. The Blues will be up for it. They are top of the table. They want to run into the finals red-hot favourites, so the Brumbies will hopefully do everything they can to to stop that progression. Um, and then the one of the biggest games of the year for the Waratahs against the Highlanders in Dunedin, Forsyth Bar Stadium, 1.35 Sunday afternoon under the roof. This will be an absolute cracker, so do tune in for that one. Well, mate, I'm excited. And particularly for that Brumbies boys match, hopefully uh, Noah Lulisiu will be back. And I don't think Bobby Valentini would be back yet. I think he might have another week out with a yeah. hammy tweet. Or I, think so. I think so. Um, yeah. So we'll see what they do within a forward pack to try and uh, accommodate for his absence. Yeah. But, mate, let's get into the locker room. Let's go. All right, moving to the locker room. We're going to start off with Ben Edels, who says an article in today's Sydney Morning Herald talks about poaching league players. Not a mining idea, but more importantly, I'd like to see each of the super teams get more money to retain the talent they already have. Retain all those fringe Wallabies players and emerging young guys. Yeah, completely agree. And we spoke about that earlier. Uh, a lot of credit also has to go to the Fighting Fund, which was set up a few years back under Raylene Castle. Yep. Um, and how that's how a lot of the younger players, such as um, Ben Donaldson, um, Angus Bell, 
Fraser McWright, et cetera, et cetera, are able to, yeah, are still kind of within the game and are emerging as the best players within their various Super Rugby franchises. So hopefully we can keep doing that moving forward. Yeah, and I think the World Cup will bring in a lot of money to Rugby Australia, which would be fantastic to be able to keep those players. But the fact that we now have uh, World Cup next year, 2023, and then a Lions series in 25, and then a home World Cup in 27, you'd be crazy to be a fringe Wallabies player and then go overseas and, and, and miss the chance to be able to feature in any of those tournaments. So we've got a Correct. real ability to retain talent now. We've got a real bargaining um, tool on Rugby Australia's side. Uh, yep. It'll be interesting to see if we can get that money to the players to be able to be competitive. Exactly. Uh, Kenny Glyn Braun asks, what's your thoughts on a talk of bringing Eddie Jones back for 2027 World Cup? Personally, I think they should stick with Dave Rennie. He's got a good temperament and has brought in a good culture. So from what I've read, the idea is not to bring Eddie Jones back as coach to replace Dave Rennie. I think they're talking about bringing him in similar to sort of Scott, um, Scott Wiseman or Scott Johnson as a director of rugby or some kind of head of rugby Australia. So uh, the idea is to have his talent and IP back at home helping the Wallabies, but he's not necessarily the head coach of the team. Moving on to Lucy Erickson's question. Thank you again for your first one that we raised at the top of the show. On Stan Sport, they were discussing how often we ask the New Zealand teams to comment on how the Oz teams are going competitive-wise in relation to previous years. Their point was, do you think we need to stop asking them how we're going? Is this almost like a little brother syndrome? We're looking for affirmation. Should we stop looking for that affirmation? Mitchell. It's something that I've actually noticed being present at the press conferences uh, mm. the last few yep. weeks, uh, particularly down at Super Round as well. That was asked a lot uh, in most of the, the press conferences for those games. You can understand that being the first time that the teams have crossed over. But even now going into the press conferences, it's always asked, how do you think the war this Waratahs team particularly has improved from the last time you played them last year? And I understand why journos are asking that because they want to, they, to, to beef up the Waratahs in their own uh, articles and those sort of things. So, But it, it is starting to be repetitive. It's the same thing over and over again. I guess when we're getting beaten week in, week out, it's like, what else can we ask these guys apart from um, <laughs> how easy was that? Was that as easy as you were expecting it to be? Like, we don't want to start asking those kinds of questions and let really let yeah. them off the, off the yeah. chain a bit. But maybe and at we times... Should really in you go bit. you go sorry i was saying maybe we should just reel it in a little bit and like we know that they have said consistently now for the last two weeks that yes um it is different this year it does feel a little tighter mm. they are a bit mm. more competitive um that's good we've beefed ourselves up let's stop asking yeah and i think that it's also partly uh from a waratahs conversational perspective because there has been such a shift between 2021 and 2022 with waratahs performances that it is a relevant question to ask mm. particularly when you look at last year's game with the hurricanes which was like 60 something to 40 something so the nature of the game was very different so it, it is a legitimate question in that context but the repetitive nature of the questioning, yeah, I, I agree with your points. Yeah. So thank you for that question there, Lucy. Really appreciate it. Moving on now to Sheepy. Uh, he's interested in our thoughts on the restarting of the league poaching program, the LPB, especially when we're losing so much great homegrown talent overseas. I think we've already spoken to mm. this one, yep. so we may not say it again. Uh, I'll, I'll direct this question to you. Should all players be given kicking training, including locks? Um, well, I would have said last week, no, that's ridiculous. Why, when would a lock take a, a kick? But after this weekend, uh, probably. 
They're, they're professionals. Will Harris they... put in a good kick, actually, uh, during the game. Well, um, came right down the sideline. Bobby uh, Valentini scored the try of the year off a kick last week or the week this before. Is true. So she, clearly, someone's teaching him to to kick and and how to put the the toe the ball on the toe. So it's not a bad idea. <laughs> and look, he does comment on how some how he can be amazed that there are a number of backs who can't do effective clearing kicks, especially back three players. Well, I mean, look at Israel Folau. He just seemed to have some things he could do incredibly well and others that he couldn't. Marika Corambete is another example. He's not a particularly skilled kicker, although he tried to get a bit better at it before he went over to Japan. Um, look, yeah, if I remember think he, in that French series, he did kick a fair bit of ball. Yeah, yeah. So maybe it's just a, some players just aren't particularly skilled at it and it takes them longer to develop it, or maybe the coaches are telling them to work on specific areas mm. instead of that. So who knows? And then we have sitting and watching. Uh, I agree with the creation of a 20-minute red card. He has a question, though, about the accountability of officials. How many reds have been found to have no case to answer? If Paddy Ryans is found to have no case, what happens next? Yeah, everybody makes mistakes. It just seems that some are more regularly impacted. I think there's a real bit of work that needs to be done, particularly by Sansa and, and how red cards are being issued in Super Rugby Pacific. And um, maybe they need to get more on board with what the judiciary panel is doing because how how often have we seen a card been given and then thrown out at the judicial panel and said, no, this isn't a card, mm-hmm. this is just a, a penalty offence or a yellow? Uh, yep. it, it's frustrating. As, as uh, Sitting and Watching has said, there is no accountability there. And we can't expect the referee to make the the right decision every single time. Sometimes I do wonder if the TMO needs to take more responsibility in the in the process of deciding the outcome of those situations. A lot of the time, and in the framework, it is the referee's, currently, it is the referee's decision to decide on uh, the outcome of foul play through a TMO intervention. But the TMO sitting there and has watched that so many times before the referee gets to. He's on the field, he's in the heat of it all. Sometimes I feel like the Timo actually just needs to communicate a little bit better with the referee. There are times mm. where the referee has gone down a track and you can hear the TMO doesn't necessarily agree, but they never they never speak up and overturn it. They'll start talking about, oh, I, I can see that as clear contact to the head with no mitigation. And then the Timo, oh, just, just look at this angle again. I just look at yep. this one. What do you think about the, the, the point of contact? And then it's like, oh, yep. no, that's still contact with the head. And so clearly the team is thinking it might not be a red card and maybe we look at the mitigation, uh, but mm. they're not stepping in. And it's the same with the ARs as well. I've, you very rarely will see, I think Damon Murphy is the only one that I've heard overturn. And I think he overturned a TMO um, decision where he said, no, I'm, I don't think that's anything to look at, get rid of it. But you very yep. rarely see an yep. AR try and talk a referee out of a different situation or decision than they've currently got. Yeah, look, it's... That's a really good point that you make. And I wonder if it's something down to the kind of team dynamics of how they've spoken about communicating during a match to make sure that they're um, trying to be a unit rather than having a different competing personalities or anything like that. Um, so that'd be interesting to get the opinion of a referee to see what they actually think and how that dynamic actually plays out in real time on the field from their mm, perspective. Uh, but anyway, that takes us to the end of the locker room. So thanks everybody for getting your questions and comments in. That was fantastic. And Mitch, thanks for a great pod and a great episode. Yeah, thanks everyone for getting to this point of the podcast. Uh, we love hearing from you. So if you do have any thoughts, questions, comments throughout the week, do send them in and we'll hopefully feature them next week when we get into the podcast uh, next Sunday. 
to record it. Thank you everyone for getting involved with us so far. We love hearing from you. So yeah, thanks for listening and we'll catch you next week. All right, see you team. Bye.